Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is uh, late afternoon in California on uh, February the 18th, which explains the rather unfortunate shadows on the screen. It's warm here. I don't want to make anyone in Texas or the East Coast envious, but uh, California is better than it's portrayed in national media. Um, the national mood, though, in America, in spite of the Trump defeat and the Biden victory, is still rather depressing, I think, in many respects. There was a, a really interesting piece by Thomas Edsel uh, in yesterday's New York Times suggesting that democracy is weakening right in front of us. Uh, Edsel spoke to a number of academics, all of whom are deeply pessimistic about the future. And of course, the images from uh, January of Congress being stormed are still uh, very fresh in our minds. Uh, so what are we going to do about it? One person who's given a lot of thought to how to fix democracy is my guest today. Her name, and I, and I hope I'm not going to butcher the name because it's, it's quite a mouthful. Her name is Daniela Baluares. She is the CEO a new organization based in uh, Washington. I don't know if it's based in D.C. I know she's in D.C. It's a Harvard-related organization called uh, Democracy Now Project. Uh, Danielle, what are you trying to do to save democracy in America? Thanks, Andrew. Uh, pleasure to be here. I think, as you said, uh, American democracy is, is in trouble. Uh, and that's not, unfortunately, uh, a new phenomenon. We've seen slippages in many of the indicators of democratic function for some time, and the last four years were uh, particularly troubling. And what we've done as an organization, the Leadership Now Project is a membership organization of business and thought leaders committed to fixing American democracy. And we seek to do a couple of things. We seek to inform the business community about the risks to democracy right now, mobilize leaders who are ready to protect democracy and support those organizations that are doing the really critical work on renewal. So we support issues related to voting rights, campaign finance reform, objective redistricting. Uh, and in the most recent weeks and months, we played a active role in visible business leadership calling for uh, election integrity, the electoral college vote to be recognized, and ultimately uh, for companies to be a part of uh, the response to the insurrection, where we saw a very significant um, response and commitments of companies to withdraw their support from candidates who supported the insurrection. And what's your relationship, uh, Daniela, or the organization's relationship with Harvard University? Are you a Harvard University-based organization or just the some of your members from the university? I know you have an association. Yes. Um, no, our membership um, 
we were started by a group of Harvard Business School alumni, including myself, uh, who were concerned in 2017 about the state of our democracy and really wanted to understand both the what the best academic work was saying about what was needed to respond to the state of affairs uh, and draw on the mix of academic and uh, business networks uh, that we had. So our membership is not exclusively from Harvard, uh, but we have been able to really uh, benefit from the academic leadership uh, that the school and uh, many across the university, not only on the business side, but on the legal and public policy side, uh, and the work that they've done to understand what's not working. And you know, just an example, if you think about, um, there's a couple of things that we've really kept in mind in building the organization. Uh, one thing you, Daniel Ziblatt, author of How Democracies Die, talks about the historical context of how business can provide the soft guardrails when democracies are at risk and at risk of, uh, of not surviving, right? When there are autocratic threats. And so that's something that's been on our mind from the start. Uh, business, if, if business does not stand up to autocratic threats, the risks are that much more profound. And we've also really taken into account what the academic research says about building kind of real enduring constituencies that will uh, stand up to the threats over the time. So not just supporting a candidate here or there, which is the nature of most people's political activity, but building an enduring constituency who will stand up to these threats for uh, you know, years and decades to come. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalized extras like stickers, surprises and special guest artwork, each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keen on for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash keen on is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster 
a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash keen on. Danielle, there's clearly a debate going on about the relationship between capitalism and democracy. Uh, and, and you're on one side of that debate. Uh, I'm actually, uh, another of my projects is um, interviewing for a series called How to Fix Democracy. And we made a movie about that last year. One of the people uh, who we talked to was Rebecca Henderson, who I know is one of your advisors on your board, uh, the author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Uh, we've also talked on this show to Ronnie Cohen, the distinguished Anglo-Israeli entrepreneur about reorganizing the architecture of 21st century capitalism to enrich democracy. But there's another camp, um, people like Michael Lind, who I had on the show a couple of weeks ago, the author of The New Class War, in which he uses uh, James Burnham's managerial revolution to argue that the problem in America is not the corruption of democracy, but the corruption of capitalism. And this idea that democracy can be enriched by borrowing from business leaders is absurd. How would you respond to people like Lind? I think I'd respond in, in two ways. Uh, first, from a very, um, this what I mentioned earlier, from historical perspective, having business as part of the coalition that supports democracy is essential in most historical contexts to democracy sustaining and thriving. And business hasn't always been on the right side. So I would acknowledge that completely. You have, you'll see in, uh, in historical contexts, including in Nazi Germany, where business did not stand up to autocratic tendencies. Or in uh, Chile uh, exactly. in the 1970s. Exactly. So if you don't have that <laughs> proactive support from democracy, from business, the risks are very, uh, are very high. And we know that um, business people and business leaders are uh, much more diverse. If I look at my peers, Gen X business leaders, uh, this is a much more diverse group, much more diverse politically, racially, um, in terms of worldview than uh, business people of 20, 30 years ago. And they're uh, very interested in being part of supporting democracy, part of reimagining capitalism, part of making a society that works. Uh, it's interesting. I saw on your podcast, you actually um, also had uh, Daniel, I'm sorry, I'm just uh, reminding myself of his last name, Daniel Markovitz, uh, who spoke about human Yeah, capital. an old friend, the, 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 the great critic of our, of our so-called meritocracy. Uh, we also had uh, Michael Sandel from Harvard, this is a very rich seam for, for, for intellectual miners like myself, uh, well, people I, who are very critical of the university in itself. And Mike, I'm not putting words into Daniel or Daniel's mouth. I, would, I wouldn't dare to do that. But there are some critics of the university who would say that places like Harvard and particularly Harvard Business School are the problem. They're not the solution. And, you know, I think something that Daniel spoke about, while I might not agree with every um, piece of his perspective, he talked about the need to reallocate human capital and talent uh, towards protecting and saving democracy as opposed to purely into the market. Uh, and I, I think there is uh, really important merit to that uh, solution. I've spent a lot of my career before working on this and really taking on seeing how can we bring 
the talent, quantitative talents. I'm an engineer by training. Um, few engineers actually go into anything other than technology, business, uh, et cetera, because there's not an entry point to bring those talents into solving our social problems and political uh, Dan problems. Danielle, I have to interrupt here. What is, what is qu quantitative talent? That sounds like uh, a contradiction in terms. What does that mean? Or it was, you know, if you take engineers, mathematicians, other skills that have been very valued uh, by companies in the last decades and the opportunity for those skills and that talent to be used instead of making the next app <laughs> to support building mm. a stronger government, a stronger public sector, a stronger democracy. I think there is uh, such an opportunity to use that talent in different ways. And I saw that. And, as that, and that's why you have my old friend, Larry Lessig on your advisory board. Do send Larry my best. We, are, will, we are very close friends. Uh, so, let's go back to the principles, the priorities of leadership yeah. now. Um, I'm not sure anyone would necessarily uh, disagree with this. Talk me through voter participation and protection in particular. Absolutely. So part of our kind of first step in looking at the state of a democracy was digging into what the academics said about what are indicators of a strong democracy. And so these speak to these four areas of priorities for us, uh, voter participation and voting rights, uh, competitive elections, uh, data and transparency and campaign, I'll add campaign finance reform to that. Uh, those are all factors that uh, speak to the health of the system. When voters are participating, when they have strong, easy access to the polls, when elections are competitive and not so gerrymandered that um, extreme, you know, you're just battling the extremes in your districts, which we're seeing the effects of at a state and, and national level. Uh, those are all factors that speak to a healthy democracy. Uh, so we've, you know, our goal has been really to direct resources and uh, public, you know, public support from the business community uh, for those efforts. Uh, so not to advance a particular policy or agenda, you know, I think one of our concerns is that the participation of business and politics, uh, certainly in the last several decades, has been extremely narrow, focused on tax and regulatory issues for companies through chambers of commerce and otherwise. And I think our group believes that we need a very clear stance that business is supporting the core function of our democracy, and that's going to enable our system uh, and our citizens to have faith in our system. You know, the data also shows that there is essentially zero correlation between your average citizen's preferences from a policy perspective and the legislation that Congress passes. So, you know, Americans don't have faith in our political system now, and that's dangerous for every segment of society, including business people. A couple of the other people, Daniela, we had on um, the How to Fix Democracy show was Ali Hothchild, the author of Strangers in Their Own Land, a book about her travels in the Deep South and her interactions, I guess, with the Trump community. And Sir Paul Collier, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, um, his, his book on the future of capitalism. Both are quite critical, again, about, about the architecture, and particularly Collier. He wants to return it to a more communitarian foundation. How would you respond to people like Collier uh, and, and indeed Hothschild in their analysis of the alienation of a large portion of Americans and indeed 
British people to their own democracies? Look, I, I think it's deeply concerning when you look at the data, both the economic data that shows you know long-term stagnation for the middle class, as well as uh, the low faith in democracy that you have, particularly um, for younger uh, Americans, where the the willingness to consider autocratic regimes is uh, stunningly high among younger um, among younger people, and and only about 17 percent of Americans say that they have full faith in their government at this point. So I think those are all scary considerations about faith in the system, both in capitalism and democracy. Um, you know, I think where I would say that we should at least should be part of looking for solutions to that is within the business community. Uh, if I look at my peers, uh, which are, who are diverse, we're not all, many of whom came from very uh, middle-class or even lower middle-class families that um, ultimately ended up in business and are now creating social impact bonds and merging kind of business practices with, with those practices um, with efforts to really change, address our big problems, whether it's climate or otherwise. I think they're getting out of us out of this mess, <laughs> basically of a democracy and capitalism that isn't working for everyone, I think is going to require tapping into all of that experience and expertise, you know, that sits in, in business, that sits in the legal field and having that debate. Because I, I see that many of my peers would like to have that discussion and debate and understand the intellectual solutions that you're talking about and have a perspective. And th that hasn't even really started. I think Rebecca Henderson, her work on reimagining capitalism is part of what's creating that debate in a business school context. And I certainly, um, I just wouldn't leave out the, gener the, the current generations of business people from uh, at least being part of the debate. And, uh, you know, I, I would argue being part of the solution. Um Let's go back. Your, your founding principles. Uh, you, we must protect democracy while renewing it. No one would argue with that. Facts and science matter. Uh, economy should work for all today and for future generations. Diversity is an asset. I think some people would read this and think this is really just another group of progressives, of Democrats, not socialists, of course, but certainly uh, a movement on the left. Some of this language would, I think, almost inevitably alienate Republicans. How would you respond to that? You know, we've deliberately emphasized that you know our core is is based on principles rather than defining ourselves based on partisan preference. Um, and I think our members see themselves first as people who bring a set of skills and you know ideas to the table. So you so, wouldn't. So you. So you wouldn't acknowledge that. You, your organization would naturally attract Democrats rather than Republicans. No, I unfortunately right now that those principles are adopted more significantly um, by Democrats. And I think, unfortunately, you have. Why is that, do you think? Why is it? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the, um, you know, I think arguably uh what I would say from Republicans who are in our group who adhere to those principles. And, you know, we've had Republican candidates that um, have uh, felt they they believe in those principles. Um, you know, I think we've seen a segment of the Republican Party that has become anti-democracy. And um, that's, you know, that's scary. And I think that's scary for moderate Republicans. I think, uh, you know, 
that's that's scary for all Americans. So, you know, I, we we have overall said those are our principles as an organization. Uh, we'd like to see both parties adopting them. Uh, and in cases where that's not happening, we'll support those who do um, who do carry those principles forward. And we won't support those who who do not. Thomas Friedman also had an interesting piece in the New York Times this week. He asked, what Trump, San Francisco, and the deer in my backyard have in common? And in a, in a, in a classically Friedman-esque kind of way, he suggests that they're all, what they have in common is that none of them uh, are in any way diverse. His point about San Francisco is it's become a, a, a liberal citadel, a deeply intolerant, and he uses the case, the recent case of the San Francisco school board to make his argument. Do you fear that there isn't enough diversity and debate amongst progressives? Is that another of the problems? Clearly, there's a problem on the right with Republicans and fake news and all the rest of it with American democracy. But is there also a problem on the left? Yeah, you know, I think something that's interesting is, you know, we talk about how all these bubbles of, you know, echo chambers are created and people are just hearing from people exactly like themselves. And I think the thing that we found is interesting in, you know, in our constituency is that, you know, I certainly know, um, I certainly know Republicans in my networks. I know plenty of Democrats in my networks and those cut across, um, you know, our, our network is diverse from a gender, from a racial perspective, um, gender and ideological perspective. So interestingly, you know, business networks can kind of cut across um, various uh, divides in ways that echo chambers and other communities um, and other communities uh, don't necessarily. So that that's uh, that I, I have. Um, I have changed my mind over time, you know, on how to think about who do we need participating in politics? You know, I think if you would have asked me five years ago how concerned I was about whether we had a, a strong a Republican Party that was, um, you know, participating well in democracy and you had good debate across the party, is it concerned? Now, fully committed to democracy. And if you have one who's not, uh, the danger of that is really significant. Daniela, uh, before this organization, you've you've worked in the uh, Obama um, and Clinton White Houses. Is that correct? Uh, just the Obama administration. Just, and uh, and you were you were focused on the foreign policy side, right? Right. Well, I was under Clinton and Kerry at the State Department. So you've worked in the State Department. There's a big debate at the moment. We had uh, my old friend Jim Goldgeier and Bruce Gentleson on the show recently talking about whether America should lead in terms of rethinking democracy around the world and have one of these international conferences. Uh, one of the, and I'm not blaming you for this, but one of the images of your organization, this idea of a perfect union, America's faith in democracy, sort of supported with quite dramatic artwork. What do you think America's place should be in the world now in terms of trying to fix democracy, not just in America, but around the world from East Central Europe to Turkey to the Philippines to Russia and China and elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I did spend much of my career working internationally and and in and part of it in foreign policy. I, I think the baseline has to be America has to have a functional democracy ourselves, <laughs> and our credibility in the world is is deeply 
related to that. Um, and uh, our the the insurrection, uh, the Texas power grid that we're seeing in the last few days, all of those things, uh, you know, over the last four years have reduced our credibility in the world. So that has to, to be our it mildly, I think. When, yeah, when yeah, you look yeah, at exactly. some of these yeah. photos, people listening on the podcast won't see them, but these photos of January 6th, even for me, I show them on every show, they're still appalling to me. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm saying what's obvious, right? Our, our standing has been reduced. And so, First priority is, is, in my mind, really strengthening American democracy. All of that said, uh, if we show up on the world not supportive of democracy, which I fear had happened over the last four years, I do think that's extremely dangerous. Not willing to work with our partners to um, to be champions. Uh, so, you know, I I've always believed that we need to. Uh, see ourselves as partners with other countries who are both working towards getting better as nations. I, I was, um, I led a lot of uh, work around the negotiations of the sustainable development goals that were agreed in the United Nations in 2015. And an important uh, element of that international agreement was that it applied to every country, including the U.S., which was a and, and Western Europe, which in previous international agreements like the Millennium Development Goals didn't apply um, to, <laughs> to European or, or OECD countries. So, look, I, you know, I, I don't think we're in a position to be lecturing anyone uh, right now, but I think we should be good partners. Very, very, I want to run through three or four more things, but I don't want to do it fairly briefly. Uh, Daniela, one of the people um, who we've, who's been on How to Fix Democracy in this show is my dear friend, Carol Anderson from Emory University. She's done some of the best work, I think, in America on race and politics. You, of course, talk about diversity in, in amongst your priorities. How central, though, is racism, do you think, in the corruption of American democracy? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, sadly, very central. Uh, as I mean, obviously, this, the founding of the U.S. Uh, was built upon um, excluding uh, Black Americans from democracy. And uh, that inconsistency in our is aspirations is, uh, you know, remains uh, a, you know, I think something that we as a nation have not fully uh, faced up to. So, and you know, business as well, given the role of business and many scholars are focusing on this, the role of business and capitalism, uh, certainly 19th century capitalism, both in slavery and racism. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, look what we saw after the death of George Floyd was this, you know, kind of reckoning ac across the country and in the business community, you know, what we didn't want to see, you know, six of our um, members who are black executives came together in response uh, to George Floyd's death and said, okay, we need to put something out there about what the business community needs to do. That's not just, you know, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> uh, so if, if you, the, the business pledge for racial equity that we did at that time committed signatories to, um, really uh, looking at their and its role in supporting police reform, supporting rights and economic inclusion and had tangible actions under each of those. We had 1200 executives sign it and, and we've continued to work on bringing uh, actions to those executives that they can take in each of those areas. You know, I would put right now, first and foremost, uh, voting rights as the biggest risk that we're facing in our democracy right now. And that is, you know, when you look at 
historical context, so much of that was driven by a desire to exclude uh, Black Americans from our voting system. So uh, at a state level right now, I mean, just even the last few days, for instance, Georgia has sought to um, uh, pass a whole slate of restrictive voting laws. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's critical. And just the one thing I would say on that is, you know, business, um, you did have a lot of business leaders and businesses who did uh, took very significant efforts to promote voting and participation in this last election. And we are seeking for that to extend to support for uh, ensuring that voting rights aren't rolled back at a state level. Daniel, you mentioned um, Daniel Markovitz, uh, the Yale University scholar, great critic of our meritocratic university system. Given that uh, your organization is organized around Harvard University, we have a guy coming on the show in a couple of weeks, Devarian Baldwin. Uh, he has a new book out, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Our Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Uh, I used to live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and certainly Harvard and MIT have plundered Cambridge and parts of the general Boston area. Uh, what do you think the role of universities and even business schools like Harvard should be in trying to fix our democracy? Do they have to reform themselves too? You know, absolutely. I think uh, elite academia is... Um, I think it's both a risk to discredit all academia, including elite academia's sources of ideas and research, and I uh, and a kind of facts and evidence-based policy. I would say that's something that Daniel in, uh, spoke to in his podcast. That at the end of the day, we're we still want to have expertise in policymaking, and so I, I fear that we kind of don't throw out <laughs> the value of really strong research in academia while also acknowledging the weaknesses that come from the system and the elitism. And I can't say I have all the answers to that, but um, we have really worked to engage with academics around shifting curriculum. Um, for instance, from a, a business school perspective, very I graduated from business school knowing nothing about how business participated in the political system, how it influenced. That was never part of what uh, was learned. And I would say many, many um, of my peers similarly did not understand that that's changing. And I think that's necessary to, to shift the dialogue as well as, you know, speaking and debating what the future of capitalism uh, should look like. I will say one thing at a, a personal level I find is, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn and, um, you know, had full, um, uh, you know, assistance for college from uh, loans and grants and other full financial aid. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had had many peers who going to elite universities was a way out <laughs> for those of us who were academically inclined but had very little resources um, growing up. You know, I went to New York City Public Schools and had a single mother and all of those things, which, you know, I'm not alone in. So I think, you know, we just have to be thoughtful about the opportunities that these institutions have also created while also recognizing the narrowness of those opportunities. So I hope we can create that debate without completely losing <laughs> what they have to offer. Daniel, finally, uh, one area where I don't think there's any doubt that the business, business community can help is when it comes to innovation. Your organization is also committed to innovating democracy. As I said, I made a movie last year, How to Fix Democracy. And one part of the movie, pre-COVID, I, I flew to Ireland and looked at what they were doing and other European countries with citizen assemblies 
are there particular innovations do you think in democracy that in in the 21st century that we need that you that, that business leaders and technologists can particularly help us with yeah, it's a great question and, and something we're exploring with several organizations right now. I, I love citizen assemblies. I love how Ireland has used them. I've always thought that was a really powerful um, way to engage citizens in policymaking. And I think we can have many flavors of that. I mean, the reality is, is that, um, you know, companies have figured out how to engage consumers in all kinds of ways. There is technology to engage. We know that that technology is being used in lots of ways that aren't good <laughs> in terms of disinformation and targeting people. But I think there are huge opportunities for citizens to be much more genuinely engaged in policymaking, you know, not just a poll, <laughs> which is the most, you know, one directional set of information, but bi-directional engagement from citizens. So, you know, we're exploring what ways we can support that. There, there are many groups who are, but, uh, you know, our democracy operates, uh, it, you know, like it did in many ways 100 years ago, and, and we can be much more innovative than that. Well, it's as uh, as your website says daniela our democracy our responsibility and i'm i'm thrilled that your leadership now project is is really committed to trying to help fix american democracy uh i know you're stuck in washington dc now in these strange COVID times is there a book people might read to help them also understand both our democracy and our responsibility to fixing it Absolutely. You know, I, I see part of our group is civic and uh, kind of civic education for business people. And one of the uh, books uh, that we recommend a draw from is called Democracy, a Case Study by David Moss. He's uh, a Harvard professor historian at the business school who takes episodes in American history where democracy was threatened in particular ways and how we resolve those conflicts and how our system was able to evolve and uh, strengthen as a result. So I, they're um, they're being taught in high schools, those case study, the case studies that are within it. Uh, and I think they're great for anyone who's trying to reacquaint themselves with American democracy at any age. Well, da Danielle, we have to get David on the show. I want to thank you. I want to congratulate you what you're doing. We'll have to have you again back on the show to see how you are continuing to fix democracy. So I wish you a, a happy relatively happy, as happy as you can be in 2021, and certainly healthy 2021. And we'll see you again very soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. And I'm really enjoying uh, all of your content about how to save democracy and the, the really interesting voices you're bringing to the table. So, so thanks for having me as part of that. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.